Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Back in the late 1970s, a new music genre exploded on the world stage. Then it was called rap, but now it's better known as hip-hop. My guest today, Bill Adler, was right there when it happened, first as a fan and music journalist, and then working for Def Jam Records and Rush Management. Adler recently donated his enormous treasure trove of hip-hop-related artifacts to Cornell University, which has become digitized and is available online for public use. We drew from some of the materials found there to talk about the founding history and figures of the genre, media milestones like the Wild Style film, rap pioneers such as Busy Beef, Fab Five Freddy, The Funky Four Plus One, the massive career of LL Cool J, and even the controversy over the presence of anti-Semitism in the Public Enemy organization and how it touched Adler personally. I'm a soldier at war, I'm making sure you don't try to battle me no more. Got concrete rhymes, been rapping for 10 years. First of all, you have this massive collection of hip-hop material, hip-hop related material. How did you acquire all of this stuff? Well, we're talking about the uh, uh, the Adler Hip-Hop Archive at Cornell University. And uh, there are really kind of two versions of it at this point. You know, one is uh, online. Uh, which, you know, uh, all of your listeners can, you know, get to, you know, simply by going to the Cornell.edu uh, website. And that's actually only a sliver of the larger collection. That's about 1,700 items. But the physical collection is is got, I don't know, uh, perhaps, you know, 20 times as many um, uh, items in it. And that's uh, available at this point only to... Um, you know, researchers who can make the trek to Ithaca, New York, on the campus of Cornell. Uh, but but Cornell has been in the process right along of uh, digitizing things. You know, as as I said, seventeen hundred items, and that's just you know, uh, in, in effect, it's just the beginning. But we've been working behind the scenes to digitize, uh, you know, the the rest of the collection. And Catherine Reagan, who is the the chief rare books librarian at Cornell, tells me that uh, you know perhaps next year at this time we should. Have have, you know, somewhere between twenty-five and 30,000 items online as part of that collection. I worked uh, at Def Jam between 1984 and 1990. You know, certainly that was a boom for my collection because, uh, you know, I was working so closely with, you know, a number of notable artists at that time. And I wasn't just collecting stuff, I was generating it. You know, I was the director of publicity. So I wrote press releases and I wrote biographies and I commissioned photographers to take the, the press photos and all of that kind of stuff. You know, I was always going to keep at least a copy of everything uh, for myself because, you know, that it's really, I'd been built, you know, in effect, you know, I'd, I'd begun collecting uh, those kinds of materials about the musical artists, uh, artists that I liked uh, going back to 1973 or so when I first started writing myself. And I did it as an aid to my own research. 
um, you know, real particularly, I was, I was, you know, uh, I had pretty broad taste, but I was uh, particularly interested in music made by musicians out of the African American community. And I found when I started writing that there wasn't a tremendous amount of uh, research materials available, not a ton of books written. And so I began to collect the kind of materials that had passed through my hands prior to that time. You know, I, I started working, uh, you know, I might as well be, you know, clear about this just so people have an idea how damn old I am. I am now 70 years old. And in the summer of 1969, actually the fall of 1969, I was 17, and I went to work at a, at a record store in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I'd enrolled at, at school. You know, the University of Michigan is there. As a music lover, that was certainly a great place to be, and I really started to build up my collection of records because, you know, every week... Uh, you know, the, the, the representatives from the various record labels would come visit us to show us the new records that they were putting out, and they would bring promotional copies of the records. So, fine, I'm going to scoop up and hold on to, uh, you know, the records that look to be of interest to me. I left alone some of the other stuff that they were bringing, namely the uh, the biopies and the... Um, uh, the publicity photos, and even as I say it now, I feel like I can kick myself for not having held on to that stuff for several years. But again, you know, when I started writing about music, which would have been for this hippie newspaper called the Ann Arbor Sun uh, in 1973, uh, that's when I began finally to hold on to uh, the uh, the biographies and the press releases and the photos as well. So by the time I started working at Def Jam, which was 1984, I'd been collecting these kind of materials for 10 years. And also that included, so, you know, obviously for, you know, the largest part of that, the, those first 10 years, there was no rap per se. And I was collecting on, you know, the musicians I liked who made, uh, you know, rock and roll and blues and R&B and soul music and uh, jazz for the most part. But, you know, uh, I was interested in rap, you know, pretty early on. So, you know, I, I you know, I, I was paying attention when the Sugar, Sugar Hill Gang hit in 1979 in the fall of 79 with Rapper's Delight. And then I had moved to New York by 1980. Curtis Blow had a national hit with a song called The Breaks. And, uh, you know, I, I was writing for the New York Daily News at the time. And so uh, Kurt who was a New Yorker, uh, was in effect kind of a local story for us, and I was able to persuade my editor let, to let me write about uh, Curtis Blow. So, you know, by the time I started working at Def Jam and, and Rush Artist Management, which were under the same roof, I certainly had collected more of these kind of materials than anybody else. Uh, you know, on the premises at Def Jam, people didn't think like that. Mm -hmm. And then again, you know, once I started working directly with the artists, I continued to, to collect these materials and generate some on my own. And, um, you know, it, it's just gone on and on. I, I continued to collect these materials. When I started to dig in to your archive at on the Cornell website, uh, there were some old yeah. photos pre-hip-hop uh, of a yeah. gal named Sylvia Robinson of Mickey and oh, sure. Sylvia fame. Now, some folks may saw those pictures and think, like, what what's this kind of doo-woppy kind of group doing in this hip-hop collection? So explain why Sylvia Robinson is important to hip-hop. 
Sylvia Robinson is important to hip-hop because she's the co-founder of Sugar Hill Records. And Sugar Hill Records was, you know, in effect, it was the Motown of rap music in the early years, say between 1979 and 1984 or so. And it so happens, or maybe, you know, maybe it was the most natural thing in the world. You can say it wasn't coincidence. You know, the, you know, Sylvia um, had been a performer going back uh, at the least uh, to 1952, and she recorded uh, under the name Little Sylvia. Well, you gotta drive, And then in 1957, she teamed up with a guitarist named Mickey Baker, and they had a national hit with a song called Love is Strange. Oh, lover boy. And if he still doesn't answer. I simply say, baby. And, you know, if you go back and listen to it, you know, you could say it might have been, you might have thought of it as a kind of a precursor to the rap music that would come out, you know, more than 20 years later, because it's basically this kind of sexy conversation between Mickey and Sylvia. Uh, you know, a lot of it is spoken. It's not really sung. Then, uh, you know, she got married and uh, she started making records. By the early 70s, you know, she's, she's uh, you know, recording under her own name. And now she's just Sylvia. And she had a giant smash, I think, in 1973 with us song called Pillow Talk. Actually, you know, I had a chance to talk to Sylvia in later years, and she told me she'd originally written it with Al Green in mind. Huh. And uh, he he loved it. You know, she played it for him, and he, and he loved it, but he wanted to take all the publishing, so she said, forget it. And she put it out herself, and she had the smash with it. But the point is, you know, she's she was uh, from Harlem, and she was just kind of alive to the things that were happening around her. And by the late 70s, that included the stuff that the kids were calling rap. And uh, so, you know, uh, she took a shot in 1979. Uh, she formed her own group or, you know, she formed a group of, of you know, rap oriented young guys who hadn't been in a group before. She put together the Sugar Hill Gang and they recorded this song called Rapper's Delight. See, I am Wonder Mike and I like to say hello. I'm to the black, to the white, the red and the brown, the purple and yellow. But first, I got to... And that launched the label. And as I said, they, you know, ripped along, you know, for the next four or five years. They had um, the Sugar Hill Gang and Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and Spoonie G and the Treacherous Three and the, and the you know, on and on. Uh, they also had Sequence, one of the very first uh, female rap groups. My name is Grinda, but they call me Blondie. I'm better known as the one and only. I'm five foot two, built so fast. So with all of that said, you know, given Sylvia's uh, importance as, as the founder of, of uh, the Sugar Hill label, you know, to the extent that I was able to find additional information about her prior to that time, I'm going to add it to her file. 
Well, I'm a T. I'll dog my face. I wanna get you on the court. I beat Charlie Chase. Cold crush. Charlie Chase, as cute as could be. You sell your soul to the devil to play like me. Well, I'm the R. Ruby D. And you got a lot of nerve when you play against me. You know you're gonna get served. Cold crush. You have a little bit of material about this film called Wild Style. Now explain to folks yeah. why this film is important to especially the hip-hop world. Wild Style was kind of groundbreaking. It was pioneering. You know, it was, uh, you know, and it was essentially completed, I think, by 1982. It was directed by Charlie Ahern, uh, who was, you know, pretty much a one-man army, uh, a very independent film. It was released, you know, relatively widely in 1983. And, you know, it's a fictional story, but it, it, it Ways, it's a it's a, it's a kind of a documentary as why as well. Yeah, there's it, not much of a plot. It, no, there's not much, there's not much of a plot, but it you know it, it features a lot of uh, you know the the, the hip hoppers and the rappers in particular who were uh, you know doing their thing mostly out of the Bronx at that time, or the South Bronx, which was you know a great capital of hip hop in, in those very early days. And it had a fairly enormous impact, you know, because, you know, really the thing, the thing about uh, rap and hip hop is that it was very underground. It was essentially kind of a folk culture between, let's say, 1973 or so and 1979 when the first record started to come out. And then, you know, here in, here in 1983, here comes a whole film about the scene. And both of those phenomena, you know, uh, rap on record and then this this film um, started to expose this folk culture to the rest of the world, you know, because, you know, film and, and records are pop culture. You know, it's not this kind of super local thing anymore. You know, the film also was was, was charming. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, people still, you know, as I think about it now, so let, let's say, you know, the, the, the formal release date was 1983. Uh, that means that next year it'll be 40 years uh, since the movie was released and people are still talking about it. Yeah, there's a lot of things about it that I like. It also features heavily uh, on graffiti artists. You know, they feature at least two real ones that I'm aware of that were pretty famous at the time. The Lady Pink and then the, the fellow yeah. Kionis, I think it's how you say his name. Quinones, Quinones. Lee, you know, better known as Lee. You know, and actually, that's that's very much to Charlie's credit because you know it 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 goes to the term hip hop itself. Um, it was just such a wild moment. It was it was so it was such a wildly creative moment. Uh, you know, in the black communities at, at at that time. You know, to the extent you know in in pop culture. You know, through the seventies, you know that world in music, at least, was kind of defined by Studio Fifty Four, which was very elite, uh, disco oriented, and located in Midtown Manhattan. And you know, all the things I'm going to mention now took place in the outer boroughs of Manhattan. You know, where where nobody uh, cool, hip, and happening was paying any attention. And that included not just rap music, uh, you know, not just rapping and DJing, but graffiti and also break dancing. And these were kind of disparate subcultures. Uh, there wasn't always a ton of intermixing between these groups of, of creative folk. But I think uh, Africa Bambata was notably important in kind of grouping them together. He put his arms around, uh, you know, all four of those 
uh, subcultures, and he's and he dubbed it hip hop. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it's very much to his credit. You know, it, it stuck all this time later, and I, I think he was right too to to uh, group them all together. Now, if you if you don't know, don't know the real deal about the two, let us tell you, let us tell you we're double trouble girls, and we're doing it just for you. So come on, take it right. So in the film, you have a, a character. She's a blonde, a white lady, and uh, in the story, she's a curates an art gallery, and she gets interested in the graffiti art. So talk about who that person is based off of, or who it really is, actually. Well, right. You know, the, the character, that character is, uh, is played by Patty Astor, who essentially was playing herself, because in real life, she was, uh, I think, uh, you know, one of the owners and, and the curator of a, a downtown New York art gallery called the Fun Gallery. And they made a name for themselves by feature, you know, by pulling these uh, graffiti artists uh, kind of off the walls of, of outer borough New York and off of the walls of subway trains and into a gallery. So in effect, uh, you know, she uh, helped to transform this street art into fine art. So that's Patty Astor, you know, very, very important. Also, uh, you know, Patty was, uh, uh, Patty and the Fun Gallery was another uh, force in uh, acknowledging rap music and, and, and hip hop culture at a time when it was still kind of confined to the outer boroughs. So all of a sudden, not only, you know, did Charlie Ahern make a movie called Wild Style, and not only did Sylvia Robinson and, and some other uh, kind of music biz folks start putting out rap records, but you had Patty Astor at the Fun Gallery, who was going to take this art that had been uh, created in the outer boroughs, and she put it in the downtown gallery and showed all the hipsters downtown uh, what was going on visually with this new hip-hop culture. Here's a little story that must be told. About two cool brothers that were put on hold. They tried to hold us back for fortune and fame. They destroyed the crew and they killed the name. They, they tried, tried to step, step on the ego and walk on the pride. But true blue brothers stand side by side through. When I first saw Wild Style, and I didn't know, like I said, I've never been to New York City before, I always assumed the blonde lady was based on Debbie Harry because of the rapture connection. So, um, yeah. but let's, while we're at it, let's talk about Blondie and her uh, giving, a, I guess, a hand to hip hop. It's, it's actually, it's a very good question. You know, how does uh, this downtown New York punk rock band called Blondie end up making uh, uh, kind of a groundbreaking so-called rap record? And by the way, in case you didn't know it was a rap record, they called it Rapture. Mm -hmm. And that was 1981, and it blew up, and it was a number one pop hit. And, you know, part of the, the way that it, it succeeded was that uh, there was a wonderful music video made of it. And, you know, young people today, what's a music video, Grandpa? <laughs> well, you know, at, at the time in 1981, it was very groundbreaking uh, to, to make, you know, kind of a, a visual representation of these hit records at the time. And so Deb and, you know, her partners in, in uh, Blondie made a wonderful video, and it included, uh, I'm pretty sure Grandmaster Flash was in it, and I know Fab Five Freddy was in it, and uh, you see Jean-Michel uh, Jean uh, Basquiat uh, in the background. It did not happen by accident. What happened was uh, Fab Five Freddy, who would later go on to be, uh, you know, the original host of the MTV show Yo! MTV Raps, 
So that goes back to 1988 or so, but we're talking about something that happened in, in 81. And Fred was already uh, you know, working as a kind of a unique connector. You know, he's a guy from Brooklyn who had this huge range, social range and cultural range. And he spent a lot of time connecting uh you know, rappers and hip hoppers in the outer boroughs with hipsters and artists uh, downtown in Manhattan. And so he brought, I'm pretty sure it was Fred who brought Debbie Harry and Chris Stein, who was also in Blondie, uh, to the Bronx just to check out this new scene. And uh, Chris and Deb uh, had their minds blown and they went back and they wrote Rapture. And it includes, you know, a reference, you know, uh, they, they name check uh, Grandmaster Flash in the song, you know, and they, they built Fab Five Freddy into the video and, you know, on and on. So, you know, I'd say it's very much to, you know, it, it's very much to Fred's credit, you know, first of all, to turn turn on these white rock musicians uh, to this, this, you know, emerging uh, black art form. But it's also, you know, it's very much to the credit of Chris and Deb to have been open to the appeal of it and to have written a rap song and had a huge hit with it. Fab Five Freddy told me everybody's fly. DJ spinning, I said, my, my. Flash is fast, flash is cool. Francois so far, flash ain't no do. And you don't stop, sure shot. Go out to the parking lot and get in your car and drive real far and drive all night and then you see your light and it comes right down. And I'll say one more thing that actually has always been kind of fascinating to me about Blondie in particular is that I think their three biggest hits had nothing to do kind of generically with so-called punk rock. They had Rapture, which was a rap song. They had Heart of Glass, which was a disco song. And they had um, The Tide is High, which was a, a remake of a, of a reggae song. I'm not the kind of man up just like that no it's not the things you do that really hurts me bad but it's the way they've been turned on to it by uh, an English writer who was in America, a uh, wonderful writer and a friend of mine named Vivian Goldman, uh, who was a huge fan of Jamaican music and reggae. One last thing about Wild Style. It features two rappers that I always felt like never got their due credit or always wondered or craved for them to have more material out there. One was Busy B. Busy B is my name, and that's a fact. And you can't beat that with a stick or a bat. Now I walk around and slide to me. In the MC world, there's no better than me. Man, I'm better than And the other was Lisa Lee. It's time for me to introduce myself. I'm the queen of the morning. Now, later in the film Beat Street, you do see Lisa Lee again. But why do you think that is that both of those rappers never got more acclaim? You know, the thing about Busy B is that, you know, he did have, you know, a career as a recording artist. And, you know, he, he made his first record very early on, probably in 1980 or so. And, you know, he continued to make singles. I don't know if he ever actually made an album. And, you know, for some reason, you know, he, he did not blow up. And, and, you know, I don't think that that necessarily speaks to, you know, his talent. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to make a, a, um, a career in the music business. 
Uh, it always has been. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking one of the problems with, with Busy B is that, you know, he, he didn't have a strong manager. And, you know, it, it, mostly he was, uh, you know, active as a recording artist during that early period uh, when Sugar Hill was, was preeminent. And, you know, Sugar Hill was magnificent. They, they, they put together a great roster or catalog of recordings, but uh, they didn't manage their artists. And typically a record label doesn't provide management and um you know that's a real real problem you know i i think that you know an artist who's going to do well in the record business better have a competent and honest manager or you know he or she's going to flounder it's tough so i don't know what exactly was going on with with, with b management wise but you know i think that probably played a, played a role in the fact that you know his his career didn't blow up but having said that you know by 1987 or so, he teamed up with another friend of his from the Bronx, a guy named Rocky Bacano, and uh, they formed a record label called Strong City. And, uh, you know, B put out records with Strong City, as I think about it now, he probably put out at least one album under his own name on Strong City, and, you know, a number of other tracks as well. Kick off your shoes and relax your socks Because Busy B is just about ready to rock And before I go and before I quit I'm going to play a funky beat that goes something like this Put your hand on your hip, I'll make your backbone slip Put the pedal to the metal, feet with the beat get down As for Lisa Lee, you know, she was pretty obscure And, and um, again, this doesn't speak necessarily to, uh, you know, the, the quality of her talent You know, she happens to be a woman and it was not easy to make a mark in hip-hop at that time as the woman because it was so damn male-oriented speaking of women one of my favorite early tracks of all time is the funky four plus ones uh, that's the joint well, we just can't miss with a beat like this and the plus yeah. one is Shaw Rock. And yeah. man, her voice is fantastic. Her rhymes are very unique. And again, just like with Busy B, I thought, why didn't we see more of her? Uh, and of course, in your collection, you have some photos and some flyers from her. So obviously, she was very active. So talk about her for a minute, if you don't mind. Um, you know, it's just so funny, you know, speaking about, you know, what we can, we should, we should call, uh, kind of the bias against women in hip hop, you know, why are they going to call themselves the funky four plus one <laughs> instead of just calling themselves the funky five, right? And just because she's a woman. I mean, you can argue, I suppose that this is going to give, you know, the one woman in the group, a little extra something, something, uh -huh. but, um, 
you know, it, it's it's also it's a little bit odd, you know, to distinguish her from the guys in the group in that way. But you know, uh, having said that, they certainly did not uh, marginalize her creatively, and you know what she has to say in 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 that's the joint, which was the biggest record that the Funky Four ever made. You know, her rap was it was magnificent. It was a big part of the success of the record. She's the joy. Do it up, y'all. Do do it up. But Shy Rock is gonna show you how you get real rough. I'm Shy Rock, and I can't be stopped. Full off the fly, guys. I will hit the top. Huh. Well, I can do it. You know, having said that, you know the record itself, in in its totality, was bigger than than what Shah uh, contributed to it. That record is a monster, <laughs> and unless I'm mistaken. Um, you know, Robert Criscow, who was the longtime music editor of the Village Voice, you know, for decades, um, I think retrospectively, uh, retroactively, he named That's the Joint as the single best single of the decade of the 1980s. Wow. So, you know, so, you know, you know that's, that's to everybody's credit. That record is just, you know, so magnificent. And, you know, Shaw plays a big role in it. Now, in some of the archive material you have on there, you have a lot of memos that were from the record label and the management yeah. company. One of the things I thought was humorous, and this is probably not a big story, but there was a memo apparently about the movie Beat Street. People were confusing... Grandmaster Melly Mel with Grandmaster Flash, and they kept saying like, you know, Grandmaster Flash is the star uh, rapper in this movie. So uh, talk about that. This I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. Okay. okay. You know, I, I haven't seen that that uh, you know press release or that letter, you know, in in quite a while. But you know, Beat Street doesn't come out until 1984. Mm -hmm. By that time, I think there'd been a split. Uh, within Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. And basically, you know, Flash and the Five had gone their separate ways. And so, you know, uh, Mel is in Beat Street, and, you know, he, he's prominent in Beat Street, and, and Flash is not. And so, you know, it was probably the head of publicity for Sugar Hill who wrote this, uh, you know, this press release or this letter to the media to distinguish the two of them because they, they both bore the same honorific, namely Grand Master. Mm -hmm. But Melly Mel was a rapper and Flash was a DJ, and it was Mel in the movie, it wasn't uh, Flash. And so, you know, I guess it had to be done. One guy that you have a lot of material on, like a lot, is LL Cool J. Now, yeah. what are your earliest memories of him, uh, t Todd Smith being his real name? You know, he came into uh, our orbit in 1984 when he was 16 years old. You know, he was a prodigy. And in effect, he was discovered by Adam Horvitz, a.k.a. Ad-Rock, of the Beastie Boys. Adam was spending a lot of time at Rick Rubin's dorm room uh, at New York University. Uh, he was still a high schooler himself. And Rick uh, wasn't doing much uh, uh, conventional studying. He was using... <laughs> His dorm room was a kind of a studio and he was making uh, beats for future hip hop records. And he was very, very focused on that. And meanwhile, because he had released 
the very first Def Jam record, uh, probably at the end of 1983, that was Rock and Jazzy J. They, they put out a record called It's Yours, and it was on the Def Jam label. Taking a record that's already made with the help of the mix for use in the crossfade. Rhythm can be kept to a self-choice pace, depending on moment or depth of bass. I don't really know, but somebody said some musical rhythm can mess with your head. I don't know. It was a sensation. It was a big hit. And uh, uh, all of a sudden, uh, demo tapes started flooding uh, into his dorm room. You know, you know, would-be artists looking to uh, sign up with this hot new label. And Rick, in effect, couldn't be bothered. You know, he had, he had other work to do that, that uh, absorbed him. But Horowitz was just hanging around, and he went through this stack of uh, cassettes that had come in, and he found one by this, this kid who called himself LL Cool J, and he played it for Rick, and Rick agreed that there was something there. And that was the start of LL's career right there. So anyway, you know, he, he starts to, you know, he comes, starts coming into our offices. He signed to the label before uh, Rick and Russ started putting out uh, Def Jam Records together, you know, as a team. You know, he was just kind of a skinny, uh, uh, you know, a hyper young kid, uh, very likable. Uh, and, um, you know, he would go on, you know, through that summer, you know, he'd, he'd go in and record with Rick. Rick and Russell uh, team up as partners in Def Jam in uh, the spring of 1984. Uh, LL, I think, was the first signing, uh, and that's, you know, midway through 84. And then in the fall of 1984, here comes the very first Def Jam single, DJ 001, and it's called I Need a Beat by this new young artist called LL Cool J. And, you know, not to take anything away from Tila Rock and Jazzy J, but I would say that I Need a Beat is the formal beginning of Def Jam. He was very energetic. He was very creative. Uh, and... You know, he was he was essentially unstoppable. And, and, you know, one of the things about him also is that not only did he make, you know, kind of battle raps over and over again, you know, he was at least as aggressive on a song like I Need a Beat as, as Run DMC, but he kind of pioneered a way to make love songs, rap love songs. And that was that was really new. Mostly rappers uh, were not writing love songs. I suppose you know somebody like Spoonie G might have done a little bit of that, but he was you know kind of more interested in sex than love. <laughs> and so LL Cool J wrote, "I need love," you know, very early on, and it was daring for him to do that. You know, it just wasn't you know tough. You know, God forbid he should write a record that addresses women rather than just other tough guys on the street. But he did it and he got away with it. Uh, you know, not least, I suppose, because he continued to make the tough guy songs as well. So, um, you know, LL Cool J was no damn joke. I was giggling 
about the games that I had played with many hearts and I'm not saying no names Then the thought occurred, tear drops made my eyes burn Cause I said to myself, look what you've done to her I can feel it inside, I can't explain how it feels All I know is that I never dish another raw deal Playing make-believe, pretending that I'm true Holding in my laugh as I say that I love you Well it's funny you should mention about the tough guy thing Cause you have his rap records which are, you know, like you said, very tough, very hard which is the majority of his material at that time. But then you, you seem, like in public, he seemed like a nice guy. Like in your archive, you, there's some photos of him with Emmanuel Lewis and Barbara Mandrell, you know, the country singer. You know, I, I think, uh, it, was that right. like a fundraiser or something like that? So he wasn't so hard that he couldn't hang out with, you know, a child actor and a country singer. Yeah, you know, you know, he was he was open to opportunity, and you know, LL's career is a kind of a microcosmic example of what happened more generally with hip hop, which was um, it wasn't gonna stay in a little cocoon. In effect, you couldn't segregate it. Um, it went on, you know, hip hop has gone on to transform popular culture. And, you know, it's, it's influenced not just, uh, you know, it radically transformed, not just, you know, the American playlist and, and American radio and, the, and the, the, the American music business, but, you know, the fashion business and the business of fine art and, you know, clothing and the visual arts more generally, and on and on and on, and politics, for that matter. You know, I would say, you know, would, would you know, Obama ever have landed in the White House if it had, if, if you know, hip hop hadn't helped pave the way for him? Mm. You know, there's an art, you know, it, it's a thing. Mm. You know, all this is a way of saying, there's almost no way to overemphasize the impact, the, the very broad impact of hip hop generally on global popular culture. It's really just been astonishing. Get the burner, up the burner, let loose the cannon, blood chipping, slipping up my planet, man a panic, funk mode, mechanical mix flows, competition in my dojo. Swing it's interesting, uh, again, with some of the, there's some, a lot of newspaper clippings, and to give a dichotomy or a contrast, you, know, you had um, George Harrison of the Beatles uh, not thinking highly of rap, and of course Chuck D, you know, takes aim at him because of that, but... On the other side of that, you have Paul Simon, and there's actually a, a couple photographs of him and LL Cool J hanging out. Apparently, he thought there was something to you know rap, as they called it back then. Yeah, it was it was controversial, and you know uh, I think that uh, uh, the people who opposed it, I mean, that was a measure of their corniness. Mm -hmm. And you know, I mean, George Harrison, you know, is certainly not the hippest of the Beatles, mm -hmm. you know. And not to take anything away from him, he made a bunch of hits, he was in the band, yada, yada, good. But, you know, for, why would he even bother to weigh in on the subject of, of rap music in a negative way? You know, keep it to yourself, George. So, you know, Paul Simon and LL, I'm trying to think how that happened. I think it might have happened. I was there that day. I think the key player in that was a writer for the New York Times, uh, prominent pop music critic named Stephen Holden. And I guess he was probably speaking to Simon and they ended up talking about this rap stuff. And uh, Paul Simon, you know, expressed an interest in it. And Holden called me and said, you know, what, a, you know, basically he probably said, you know, Paul Simon wants to meet LL Cool J. And I said, oh, okay, <laughs> twist my arm, you know? <laughs> and I, I helped make that happen and we, we wrote out Holden and Paul Simon and I uh, drove out in a limo 
to uh, LL's grandmother's place in St. Albans, Queens. We went down to uh, the basement of the house, which is where L was living at the time and where he was staying. And the two of them just chopped it up. And it was, uh, you know, it was very congenial and Paul was very open. And, you know, uh, LL, for his part, you know, I think he was slightly taken aback. And, and, you know, truthfully, I don't know the extent to which he was familiar with the catalog of Simon and Garfunkel. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's, he's going to be open and they're going to be able to talk music. And it was a beautiful thing. And this is a story about a brother I know. Hello, Cool J's DJ at the beginning was Cut Creator. Um, yeah. And then what, whatever happened with him? Because, you know, he got name-checked a lot on the, at least the first couple records, and then I don't remember hearing anything more about him. Uh, you know, that's a good question, and I don't know. But, you know, he and L were tight. I think they, you know, they met in high school. And, you know, in addition to, um, you know, recording together and touring together, um, I, I think that, um, you know, uh, Cut Creator, his, his given name is Jay Philpot. Uh, and uh, Philpot was not as tall as uh, LL, but he was broad. And he was kind of a brawler, if need be. And the thing about LL at that time is that he would run his mouth and he couldn't always, uh, uh, you know, back it up at the time. And when he got into trouble uh, with his big mouth, as a as a teenager, he was lucky to have uh, Cut Creator with him because uh, Cut Creator uh, uh, prevented El from getting his ass beat more than once. I think that was his job. He's a former football player in high school. But tell me, was it really just the flavor that be clogging your ears? The most healthy behavior is to stay in the clear. It's all for you. It's really all for you. Punch back, close your eyes, try to munch that. I'm going to read part of a memo that can be found in the archive where Adler addresses a problem involving LL Cool J in July of 1989. I've attached a copy of a memo from Mary Ellen Catanio at Columbia Records. It documents nine television interviews blown off by LL between July 5th and July 19th. Mary Ellen tells me that she and her staff are disinclined to set up any more television interviews for LL because of this tendency not to make good on the commitments they've made for him. Frankly, I don't blame them. However, if we could somehow guarantee LL would meet his commitments, perhaps we could convince Columbia to start working for LL again. In related news, I must tell you that his performance in print interviews isn't much better than with television. With this twist... He'll do the important print interviews that I've set up for him, but with such a negative and unattractive attitude that the interviews are worthless. I know he's been sick just recently, but unless L's attitude towards the press improves, he'll only succeed in making the press hate him and in making those of us who do publicity for him look foolish. Adler now explains what was going on in that summer of 89. All right, yeah, so, so, you know, he you know, finally hit a wall. I think his third album uh, didn't do as well as his first two albums. Kind of the, the thrust of rap and hip-hop was, was changing in 88, 89, and this new thing called uh, conscious rap right. was happening, including under the same roof as LL with, you know, with, with Public Enemy on Def Jam. 
And, you know, he might have been at sea a little bit, you know, somehow all of a sudden he wasn't as popular, he wasn't as cutting edge. I imagine that that was, um, you know, upsetting to him. And then also, you know, I think it's at that moment he's being managed by his father, Jimmy Nunez. And, um, you know, I don't know that that was necessarily a happy thing. Uh, His relationship with his father had been uh, pretty doggone rough. I don't think he'd had much contact with his dad prior to becoming a you know a huge pop star, and then all of a sudden his old man you know strolls back into his life and decides he's going to take over uh, his young son's management, and uh, that was probably pretty rocky. So um, you know that that's what I know about the context of that moment. Public Enemy. Now they were, of course, on the cutting edge of you know bringing or dragging maybe rap into more what you call socially conscious lyrics. But philosophically, I think Chuck D. I've read him in interviews say like he was heavily influenced by like the Marxist element of you know Black Power, like a la Black Panthers and that type of thing. Uh, but also a lot of just I guess you call it Afrocentric type of things. For example, the Nation of Islam, and I, I believe there's yeah. an actual relationship, you know, that it's not just like he read their books, I mean, he's, he's buds with them, or maybe they were mentors, I guess. And so, one thing about the Nation of Islam, I mean, they, they, they stand for a lot of things, or they have a lot of parts to their philosophy, but they're not real f- fond of Jews, right? Uh-huh. And so, you know, this doesn't come out in Public Enemy's music initially, but there's this incident where Professor Griff makes some comments in an interview, and they're, and they're not good. So, first of all, if you don't mind telling us, what, what did Griff say that set off such a firestorm? He was in England with, with uh, Public Enemy, and um, the English press were, were nuts about Public Enemy even before, uh, you know, uh, the American public and the American press really uh, embraced them. And it had been very hectic for Chuck on the road. And, uh, he, you know, one time he was due to do an interview and he just shrugged it off and he passed it on and he, and he, he asked Griff to do the interview because Griff was his so-called minister of information. And you can see the influence of, of uh, the Black Panther Party right there, you know. Right. You know, he's got a guy in his group who's, who's the designated minister of information. So, you know, Griff does an interview, and in the course of it, somehow, you know, he, he ends up talking about Jews, and he says, Jews are, um, what is he? he says, Jews are responsible for the majority of wickedness uh, in the world, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. It touched off uh, a firestorm, you know, proverbially, uh, well, the pr- predictably, I want to say. And uh, it was, uh, you know, on the chance that it, it might not have ignited a firestorm, uh, you know, if it had remained in the British press, it was picked up uh, by the Village Voice. They wrote about it. And then uh, David Mills, who was a a staff writer, not for the Washington Post, but for the other uh, Washington Daily Newspaper at the time. Maybe it was called The Star. The Washington Uh, Times? The Washington Times. Maybe it was the Washington Times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he wrote, uh, he did a lengthy interview and wrote a a lengthy uh, think piece about Griff. It became a very, very big deal, a kind of a crippling blow to public enemy. And... 
you know, it certainly wasn't the kind of thing that made me happy. I don't think you have to be Jewish to oppose anti-Semitism any more than you have to be black to oppose racism. But, you know, I, I happened to be a Jew and I was unhappy. You know, Griff, Griff going after, you know, the Jews uh, as a group, as a race at that time. And so, um, you know, I tried to, you know, I sat down with Griff and we talked uh, about this, you know, and I, I kind of made no assumptions. You know, I, I, you know, let me find out what happened from the guy who's, who's named in this. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Griff is that he's, um, you know, his demeanor, you know, his general demeanor was very much, uh, it was, it was relatively mild. I was, I, I would say, you know, not to say that he wasn't serious, but he was, he was sober. He's disciplined. You know, his basic demeanor was like a, you know, he's like a soldier, uh, or say even an officer. And so we sat down and we talked, and there were no voices raised. And, you know, I, I asked him about, you know, had he been correctly quoted, and what were his feelings about the Jews, and on and on. And, you know, in this kind of uh, very uh, matter-of-fact way, he kind of confirmed uh, what he'd said. So, uh, you know, obviously that, that wasn't a happy thing for me. And, I, and, and it wasn't also, it, it wasn't uh, terribly useful. You know, I didn't feel I'd, I'd got anywhere. It didn't, it didn't help me in terms of trying to figure out what the next move might be. So I, then I, I, I sat down with Chuck and I asked him about it. And Chuck, I, you know, I, I love Chuck D. And we remain friends all, this, all these years later. Um, I think at that moment, I think he really felt kind of caught in the middle, you know, he'd been friends with Griff his childhood, I think. They were very close friends, and Griff's in the band. And that's a great thing. Uh, but, but also, you know, uh, Griff's remarks had ignited a firestorm, and there was uh, a lot of pushback, you know, from other folks who were close to Chuck and who were, you know, uh, supporting uh, public enemy and working on behalf of public enemy. And so, you know, Chuck was under tremendous pressure. And the pressure was basically to fire Griff. And I think he didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and maybe it was a matter of principle, you know, in effect, kind of anti-Semitism, you know, aside, you know, this is Chuck's band, uh, you know, nobody can force him to get rid of a member of his band. You know, maybe, maybe that's sort of what he was thinking. Mm-hmm. So Chuck, you know, to my way, th- way of thinking, kind of dithered. And that wasn't a happy thing for me. So at that point, um, you know, I, I told Russell and, and Lior Cohen, I said, look, I'm not working with them anymore. You know, until, the, until uh, you know, or, uh, uh, you know, if this thing is ever, you know, resolved, you know, good, you know, I can come back at that point, but, you know, if these guys are going to continue to uh, uh, stand in defense of, of these anti-Semitic remarks, I, I can't work the project anymore. I can't be involved. And so, um, you know, that was a thing. And, you know, my, you know, the fact that I left, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know what it meant very personally to the group. I mean, I can just tell you that, you know, uh, Griff's remarks caused, uh, you know, a big shakeup uh, within uh, within public. I want to add something, if you don't mind. Yeah. I was digging through your archives, and I found some other things that were interesting that kind of maybe the Griff, his attitude was not isolated. So, for example, there's this handwritten note in there. It says... Uh, 
public enemies like recommended book list, something like that, right? In there, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, of course, Afrocentric kind of uh, books that you expect. Some stuff from like Elijah Muhammad, you know, from the Nation of Islam. Yeah. But in there is Henry Ford's The International Jew. That's right. Now, someone scratched it out, but it's still there. And, and I just wonder, like, yeah. w- what was the story behind that, you know? Henry Ford, yes, the founder of the yeah. Ford Motor <laughs> right. Company. A, a notorious anti-Semite. <laughs> and in the, in the 1920s, he wrote a column... Uh, a newspaper column for a paper called the Dearborn Independent, and Dearborn was a, a, a suburb of Detroit. And um, the International Jew was a book published under Henry Ford's name in the, in the 1920s, and it was a kind of a collection of articles that he'd written for the Dearborn Independent. And it, you know, helped to, you know, fan the flames of American anti-Semitism, but also, you know, it was inspired by you know, uh, Henry Ford was a devotee, I guess, of a translation of a book uh, purportedly written by some Russian Jews called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And this laid out, you know, the secret Jewish conspiracy to rule the world. And, you know, of course, you know, the Jews did not write it. It was written by some some Russian anti-Semites, but it caught fire and it was influential to the great Henry Ford. And then Henry Ford, Ford's version of it was influenced too, uh, you know, notably, I think probably to Louis Farrakhan of the Nation of Islam, right. because, you know, he's a, no, he's a notable anti-Semite. <laughs> so after the Nation of Islam embraces it, here comes Public Enemy, and they're... Um, influenced by the nation of islam and and griff is is probably you know is he is he a formal member of the nation of islam or not you know but he's he's a devotee of of farrakhan that's for sure and you know it goes back to a moment you know in my interview with griff uh, when we were talking this over, and he made some remarks about just some, some you know, terribly uh, anti-Semitic remarks about the Jews, you know, he he cited Henry Ford. It's not just me saying this, Bill. You know, Henry Ford said yada 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 yada, <laughs> and I said, Griff, I said, forgive me. I said, I grew up in Detroit. Okay, let me tell you about Henry Ford. Okay, he was a notorious racist and anti-Semite. He would have as readily upholstered the seats of his cars with your black hide as with my Jewish hide. Understand, please. And he shrugged to me. He just he literally shrugged it off and he said, Bill, he says, I can't help it. It was in the book. And you know, that was the end of the conversation. As I think about it now, that was the end of the conversation. Listen, Henry Ford, you know, prior to uh, the influence of nation of um, you know, his book about the international Jew influencing uh, the nation of Islam and then public enemy, you know, it was a big influence on this guy in Germany who was coming to power in the 30s. His name was Adolf Hitler. You know, he made a point of uh, saluting Henry Ford for his writing with the international Jew. I remember this as a young person at the time. And I remember like Chuck D. firing Griff. I, I know he wasn't happy about it because I, th- I think he did it begrudgingly. I, I seem to remember some stuff in the press about that. And then, I don't know if they ever quite recovered, but I remember there was another track that came out after this called Welcome to the Terror Dome. And yeah. there was uh, one line in there at least that made some people think that, you know, uh, maybe Chuck D. was 
angry about that whole situation or who knows what. But the line is, you know, I told a rab rabbi to get off the rag. It almost sounds like a juvenile lyric. But do you remember anything, any context about that song? You know, context, schman text, as far as I'm <laughs> okay. concerned. You know, that was that was a, a you know a direct swipe uh, at the Jews, mm-hmm. and you know it's 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 not you know the highlight of of Chuck's career. I would say you know it's a shame. Mm-hmm. Chuck D has a a great heart. And, you know, also, I don't hear him as time has gone on. You know, I haven't heard him, you know, circle back uh, to any of his, you know, the, the kind of the very, you know, I don't hear him supporting anti-Semitism decades down the road and over and over again. And, you know, uh, Griff, by contrast, has written books uh, that, that, you know, continue to adhere to these kind of anti-Semitic notions. Mm-hmm. So, um you know, I'm 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 sorry that you know Griff continues to feel that way, but you know that's a thing, and um, you know Chuck has not uh, uh, Chuck's brand, I would say, is not you know permanently defaced by the Griff incident. Right. Like if Griff came to you tomorrow and said, "Hey, man, I'm sorry about all that. I was totally wrong. Can we be buds again?" You know, would I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. You know, listen. That's a that's a sweet fantasy, uh, but if it were to you know uh, come true, you know I'd be thrilled mm-hmm. to you know to be able to go ahead and be friends with him again. Obviously, I took it personally, but you know it's bigger than me. You know to to hold these kind of really uh, racist ideas, mm-hmm. and so you know it would be it would be to his credit widely. I would say, for him to repudiate those ideas. You know, but then again, guess what? It's 2022, and, you know, you can say that, you know, Griffin is only was kind of avant-garde because, you know, anti-Semitism is back on the rise in America. So, yeah. what the hell? Yeah. I was sitting in my house watching my TV when all of a sudden it dawned on me that I was all alone just wasting my time. So I'd rather pen and paper and wrote down the rock. If you'd like to check out the materials that we drew upon today, you can do an internet search of Adler Hip Hop Archive at Cornell University, and we'll also put up a link on the show notes. If you'd like to get some more of Bill Adler's stories, give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile 257 a listen, where he talks about his favorite Christmas songs, including Curtis Blow's Christmas Rappin' and Run DMC's Christmas and Hollis. Or if you want some more hip-hop talk, on episode 185, black history professor Kalanji McClellan gives us an analysis of some of the ideology that runs through hip-hop lyrics, including Marcus Garvey, W.E.B. Du Bois, The Nation of Islam, Moorish Temple, New Obians, and more. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail... You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. Say I got money and I can't jump. Let's go to work, let's go to work. We gave a lot of parties and we got jerked. But that's alright because we be good sports. Because we know someday we get the big pay off and rock the house.